Tian Fiume was a land of Cucaina, an extra-legitimate space where normal rules didn't apply. It was also a land of cocaine, fashionably carried in a little gold box in the waistcoat pocket. Deserters and adrenaline-starved war veterans alike sought a refuge there from the dreariness of economic depression and the tedium of peace. Drug dealers and prostitutes followed them into the city. One visitor reported he had never known sex so cheap. So did aristocratic dilettantes, runaway teenagers, poets and poetry lovers from all over the Western world. Fiume in 1919 was as magnetic to an international confraternity of discontented idealists as San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury would be in 1968. But, unlike the hippies, D'Annunzio's followers intended to make war as well as love. They formed a combustible mix. Every foreign office in Europe posted agents in Fiume anxiously watching what D'Annunzio was up to. Journalists crammed the hotels. D'Annunzio was already a best-selling novelist, a revered poet, and a dramatist, whose premieres were attended by royalty and triggered riots. Now he boasted that in Fiume, he was making an artwork whose materials were human lives. Fiume's public life was a non-stop street theatre performance. One observer likened life in the city to an endless 14th of July. Songs, dances, rockets, fireworks, speeches, eloquence, eloquence, eloquence. By the time his occupation of Fiume came to an end, D'Annunzio's dream of an ideal society had deteriorated into a nightmare of ethnic conflict and ritualized violence. For over a year, it suited none of the great powers to bestir themselves to eject him, but when, eventually, an Italian warship arrived in the harbor and bombarded his headquarters, he capitulated after a five-day fight. But for the duration of his command, Fiume was, precisely as he had intended it should be, the stage for an extraordinary, real-life drama with a cast of thousands and a worldwide audience, one in which some of the darkest themes of the next half-century's history were announced. D'Annunzio believed he was working to create a new and better world order, a politics of poetry. So did observers from every point on the political spectrum from the conservative nationalists who eagerly volunteered to join his legion, to Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who sent him a pot of caviar and called him the only revolutionary in Europe. His followers saw Fiume as a place where life could begin afresh, rinsed clean of all impurities, freer and more beautiful than ever before. But the culture created there rapidly took on a character which, seen in retrospect, is hideous. Black uniforms decorated with lightning flashes, which made malign supermen of their wearers. Military spectacles staged as though they were sacred rites. A cult of youth which degenerated into licensed delinquency. The bullying of ethnic minorities. The never-ending sequence of processions and festivals designed to glorify an adored leader. All of these phenomena are now recognizable as typical of the politics, not of poetry, but of brute power. Later, Benito Mussolini encouraged the writing of a biography of D'Annunzio entitled The John the Baptist of Fascism. D'Annunzio, who saw the fascist leader as a vulgar imitator of himself, was not happy with the suggestion that he was a mere harbinger, preparing the way for Mussolini's messiah. But though D'Annunzio was not a fascist, fascism was D'Annunzian. The black shirts, the straight-armed salute, the songs and war cries, 
the glorification of virility and youth and patria and blood sacrifice, were all present in Fiume three years before Mussolini's march on Rome. A great deal has been written about the economic, political and military circumstances in which fascism and its associated political creeds flourished. D'Annunzio's story provides a lens through which to examine those movements from another angle, to identify their cultural antecedents and the psychological and emotional needs to which they pandered. To watch D'Annunzio's trajectory from neo-romantic young poet to instigator of a radical right-wing revolt against democratic authority is to recognize that fascism was not the freakish product of an exceptional historical moment, but something which grew organically out of long-established trends in European intellectual and social life. Some of those trends were apparently unexceptionable. D'Annunzio was a man of broad and deep culture, thoughtful, widely read in the classics and in modern literature. He spoke for beauty, for life, for love.